I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today, I'm excited to have a fellow upstate New Yorker, somebody kind of from the same part of the world as me, which there aren't a lot of us who made it out alive and, and have been doing finance. So uh, I'm happy to have Nate Polichuk with me. Nate, how are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start there. Give us kind of where you're from, background. We're going to do a deep dive into the investment strategy and, and the fund, but let's back up and get a little bit of background on you. Yeah, I mean, so I um, I grew up in a small town called Bestel, New York, which is uh, just outside of Binghamton. Um, my parents are both PhDs. Um, my claim to fame is really my wife, who is a former Jeopardy champion. Um, and my hobbies outside of investing are, uh, are NASCAR and film. So I first got uh, you know involved in finance when I was about eight years old. Uh, my grandfather was a stockbroker, um, invited me to his office just outside of Washington, D.C., showed me a stock book um, made by S&P, Standard & Poor's. And he was basically like, all right, pick your favorite stock. And um, I ended up picking Exxon, basically just because it had positive earnings, you know, a good uptrend and like everyone needed gasoline. Um, so I remember my grandfather literally just putting me on the phone with a cousin um, who ended up actually buying the stock on my recommendation when I was eight years old. And um, I mean, good things happen. The stock returned about 20% each year for the next decade. So I was sort of a family hero. Um, at eight and involved in the markets. But I mean, I started trading for my own account um, in my college dorm room, ended up get hi- getting hired by a company called Spearleads and Kellogg, which got bought by Goldman Sachs for $6.6 billion nine months after I joined. Uh, worked at Goldman for about seven years, then worked at some of the largest asset management firms in the world. 
uh, Bridgewater Associates and AQR. And uh, I'm now a founding partner and portfolio manager at uh, Yield Point Stable Value Fund. Man, just a kid from the Southern tier making it to Goldman and Bridgewater. I love it. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the investment landscape has, has changed pretty dramatically since you've been in the business or working on the street, as I would call it. And you've worked with some really brand name, top tier type firms. Before we get into the, the, the strategy and the fund, I mean, what were those experiences like working at some of these huge, really bureaucratic, big corporations versus what you're doing today, which I think there's three of you on the team, right? Yeah. Um, so it's it's really different, to be honest. I mean, working at some large firms like, you know, Goldman Sachs, I mean, everything is already built. So like you walk in there and like, it's basically, you know, at least the time when I worked there, it was basically a money printing machine. You know, you walk in, you go in, you try to innovate and come up with new ideas to make it better. But I mean, it's all set up like starting a firm, um, you know, you got to do everything. And um, what's very cool about it is like, we can do a lot of things that bigger firms can't do. Um, like in terms of our service providers is like, we can use and we have a company called Rippling that we use for our payroll, um, ties into our 401k, um, ties into benefits and things like that. So like these are firms that maybe, you know, a bigger company who's already well established can't do, but they're like immensely powerful for a whole bunch of different functions. So like it really gives us a power. Um, I thought Bridgewater was an amazing place to work. I mean, one thing that I remember is we had an event every year um, it was called the Scrum. And um, the way this thing got invented was like Bridgewater's headquarters are in Westport, Connecticut. And the office is like surrounded. It's basically in a nature preserve. It's surrounded by water. Um, and someone came up with like a great idea of like, hey, let's have a race through the water around Bridgewater. Um, so the founders of the firm are like, all right, anyone who wins this is going to get two first class tickets anywhere in the world. So I competed in it and I actually raced against Reed Dalio. There were like 10 people in our heat. <laughs> Reed was like in his late fifties at the time. And like, this is not like a simple race. I mean, there were rocks, there was waterfall. Like, you know, I think they hired like an ambulance to come just in case like people really did get injured during this. Um, but I mean, Ray did it, you know, and maybe it may have been one of the only few things that I was better at than Ray. But uh, <laughs> I actually won my heat, made it to the finals. Um, didn't win. But uh, it was, man, great experience. So, I mean, I think at those big firms also, um, Bridgewater was a little bit more scrappy when I was there, you know, about 150 employees. Um, so learned a ton there and uh, really great experiences. Yeah, I mean, I'm big, I've read Ray's book and, and I follow him on social media and he's just doing some really cool stuff at this stage of his career. Um, and, and I might revisit some of those experiences to ask you some harder questions, but let, let's get into what you're doing today. Um, what was the catalyst? I mean, what was the aha moment light bulb going off that, because to your point, I mean, Goldman and these firms, like they've thought of almost every idea, right? I mean, Wall Street and finance is nothing if not creative on creating some of these investment products. So how did you come upon this concept and, and realize that it wasn't already taken? Yeah. I mean, so I, I started a commodity hedge fund um, called Commodity Asset Management. Um, and what I was trying to do was basically come up with a way to get more color about what's going on within the fiscal commodity markets. So, um, you know, was out with someone, um, they basically gave me this really good idea of like, hey, there are a lot of like middlemen out there and these guys need to buy material 
from mines, but the mine won't release the material unless they put up, you know, 90% of the value over the material. And historically, like middlemen were like using their own balance sheet for this. So they could do like one or two or three deals at a time. Um, and I came up with the idea of like, hey, like, why don't we offer financing to the middlemen um, to basically smooth out their cash flows? And we can talk more about the strategy. But I mean, the long story short about it is it's an amazing strategy that basically produces, you know, a stable roughly 8% return. I think we were up like 7.89%, you know, month after month. So it's, it's capacity constrained. So like at a big firm, that's like $160 billion hedge fund, something like this, like is great and they love it, but like, it just doesn't really move the needle for them. So I love strategies like that, that are sort of a little bit more niche that provide like the stability that investors want that are institutional. I mean, we're, you know, $83 million under management. I mean, we are capacity constrained, so I think the biggest we can get right now is about 125 unless we can add some more quality deal flow. Um, but it, it's it's not that like a bigger firm, you know, maybe they could be aware of it, but it's just like a lot of these big firms, like they need these giant trades to do um, in order to make any difference whatsoever. So like in my own investing, like I love firms that are like more niche. They've got to be above a certain institutional level. I mean, we're audited by KPMG. You know, our admin is SSNC, the biggest hedge fund administrator. But like, I love the capacity constraint because it helps protect the strategy against some of the larger people who may, may love it, but just don't do it or can't do it or won't do it. Right. I mean, I agree with you. I love niche alternative strategies, <clears throat> but you do have to be worried sometimes when somebody with a cost of capital as cheap as a Goldman or Bridgewater can come in and just crush your margins and destroy your alpha, right? So yeah. maybe for people who aren't as familiar with the commodity space and how these transactions occur, I used a, probably a pretty poor analogy when you first connected about factoring um, of how some of these you know, um, shipping groups uh, in the automotive space or the trucking space work, but could you maybe break it down like how it works in layman's terms so that people can kind of get a sense? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really it's a really simple transaction. Um, you know, I guess the bucket would be like trade finance. I mean, it's something that the, like the Medici's did, um, you know, many hundreds of years ago. It's been going on for a long time. It's basically there's a middleman. They want to buy material from a mine. A mine won't release it unless they put up ninety percent of the value. What we'll do is we'll we'll step in there. We'll put up the money to get the material um on behalf of the middleman who's already sold it to you know a customer somewhere else in the world and we'll, we'll be getting paid for that material the difference for us is that we actually take ownership over the material so we basically sign a buy and a sell contract that as soon as we put up the money um the middleman will pay for it then it'll, they'll sell us the material so we actually own the material and the stuff that we deal with are like building blocks of the world you know industrial commodities you know nickel zinc tin lead copper and some precious silver gold stuff like that um, they sell us that commodity, we buy it. And then we agree as soon as their customer, the middleman's customer pays them back, um, we'll agree to sell the material back to the middleman. And the beauty of this is that most of the time, like the material is actually paid for based on a, a survey result of like a third-party firm before it ever even reaches the end customer. So like that takes out a lot of the risks. And we also like ensure the deals with Lloyd's of London. So like there's a lot of bells and whistles um, to it, but like high level it's just a very um it's a very secure trade our average deal is about 41 days long but again there's variance in it because deals can be like seven days they can be 200 days most of the time it's close to 41 days but like that creates a lot of difficulty for companies 
because if you're doing like two or three deals, you don't want to have your cash tied up for like an unspecified amount of time. So the point is like, could someone come up with a, with a similar trade or have a lower cost of capital and figure out how to do it eventually? Maybe they can. But I mean, what I know right now is like the circus is in town. The trades worked. I've been doing it for three years. We've built up quite a bit and we'll keep doing it as long as it works. So you, you've covered the, <clears throat> the investment approach and why it's unique and, and niche. Talk about kind of the risk adjusted returns. You, you talked a little bit about the downside protection, but, and this is close to my heart because I'm a real, I'm a stable real estate guy. So I love cash flow. Talk about some of the yields that you're able to achieve. Yeah. I mean, so we, we target an 8% return. And again, that's net of all fees. So I think last year we returned 7.89%. The idea is the deals that we do are, are generally struck on like a LIBOR or a SOFR basis. So we're trying to fund the deals at like LIBOR plus, you know, a thousand roughly, which would be like, you know, 10 and a half to 11 and a half percent range. Some deals less, some deals more if we can do it. But the idea is creating a big portfolio. I think we have about 90 deals right now going in the portfolio. I mean, we've done a total of 500. Actually, I think it's 498 deals over the last 11 and a half months, nearly a year since we launched the fund. And uh, we have a lot of institutional rules about the risk because we don't want to have any single deal more than 15% of the NAV. I mean, we're not even close to that. I think our largest deal was like 5.05 million. Our beauty is like the banks historically used to do this pre-2008. There's a lot of paperwork that goes into the deals, a lot of diligence and a lot of, a lot of net capital requirements post Basel III. So the banks have largely exited this business. They will still do, do deals with like the larger, you know, some of the very, very large companies, you know, $8 million or more, $5 million or more and things like that. But our niche is our average deal size is about $600,000. So we're able to siphon up a lot of those smaller deals that these people just are not, you know, the banks just won't bank them. They maybe they did pre-2008, 2008, they won't do it now. So that's really our edge is like smaller deals and like having a diverse book and portfolio. And then, and then. Talk about kind of how you use insurance to help protect that downside as well. Yeah. I mean, so one of the risks of the strategy is like, if you think about it, we do these deals in like 30 different countries. We've done these in 30 different countries around the world. Like, let's say we have a truck that's like shipping zinc from like a mine in like central Mexico to the port. Like what happens if that truck gets into an accident? So that's a risk factor. And the way we mitigate that is like, we have full insurance with Lloyd's of London major insurance company. We've never had any issues with any of the deals you know, that, we, that we've done. It's a very safe strategy, but we always want to have that insurance. What if it's on a ship and the ship sinks or, or things like that? So um, that's how we mitigate a lot of the downside. So it's, it's basically a very straight, very straight, efficient transaction. Again, it's not a 30% return or something like that. But I mean, a lot of investors, they look at bonds right now, which are down 3% on the year. And they're like, hey, we can make seven and a half to 8% with you. Like, steady, very attractive. We also do quarterly distributions also. So like we literally have one investor who pays the rent off the strategy. So they take a quarterly distribution and every quarter they get a check for like, you know, $7,000 or whatever it is. And then they use that to like pay the rent for the next three months. <laughs> so I like that. Pretty cool. Um, and this isn't just purely about the returns. There's also a, a impact double bottom line component to this. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, that's actually something really cool. It wasn't why we started the business. I mean, we started the business, obviously, to make our investors money, to make us, I have a lot of my own personal capital in the strategy as well. A lot of the materials that we deal with are like, if there's, let's say, like a zinc mine out there, when they're mining zinc, they're pulling up a bunch of other stuff from the ground also. 
the zinc mine knows how to sell zinc. They don't necessarily know how to sell this other material. And oftentimes, you know, they pull out some soil with some copper in it, some lead, some gold, some silver. That's where our middlemen really specialize. So one 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 circumstance that we're actually working on right now is I'm actually going to be going out to uh, to visit the area this weekend, Sunday, but it's in uh, East Helena, Montana. You can Google it. I mean, there was a, a shuttered Asarco plant, which was like a big, it's called American Smelting and Refining Company. It operated as a lead mine, um, a lead processing facility, basically, for over 100 years. And like the one thing that that town East Helena is noted for is it's got like a 50 foot pile of like mine waste that's polluting the drinking water of the town. It's really bad. So one of our middlemen actually went in there and figured out that like they did an analysis in the material and they actually figured out there's like quite a bit of like valuable zinc in there, even though that was like a lead processing facility. Some of the material and the byproducts of it actually had had like valuable zinc. They found a buyer for that material in another place in the world. They've worked with the state of Montana to build a short rail link to get that material from East Helena out to Vancouver, Washington, not Canada, but Washington, Washington state to ship that over to, uh, to a customer of theirs um, over in Asia. We're going to reduce that pile by 50% over the next five years. We're going to cap it. I think it's going to be turned into like hiking trails in a nature preserve. So, I mean, again, not why we're doing it, but um, there's an amazing effect of like, you know, making the world a better place and taking mine waste and like converting that into like buildings or cement or things like that. So it makes me feel good about why we do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's great. I mean, if you can make, if you can do well and do good, that's, that's terrific. Right. Yeah. Obviously there's an issue here. You covered a little bit on the insurance side, but in terms of structuring the transactions, so you can maybe give some perspective on what the default rate looks like here and kind of what the loss rates are and, and compare it to other, you know, similar type products or structures. Yeah. I mean, so historically, like if you look at default rates and there are like, you know, organizations that will actually calculate on trade finance, like what the default rates are. I mean, they're like, you know, sub 0.1%. So basically people that I've I've talked to that have done this, and again, there's trade finance is a very big business. It's been around for a long, long time. There are trillions of dollars that are involved in this line of business. I mean, it's sub like 0.1% for a default rate. So generally you're going to have a deal once every like two to three or four years, like one deal will, something will happen with it. We mitigate it as best as we can. I mean, again, across our 498 deals, we've never had a problem. You mitigate it with insurance as best as you can. The issue is like, you know, Lloyd's of London is a very good pair, but sometimes insurance, they're in the business of saying, hey, well, we're not going to pay you hundred cents in the dollar. We're going to pay you 90 cents or 80 cents in the dollar. So like part of the way we mitigate against that risk is just having a big portfolio, you know, doing deals in 30 different countries across a lot of different commodities. So it's just diversity in the book. And if like one $500,000 deal, we lose 20% on it. All right. Like we're out a hundred grand. Like we have an $83 million fund. It's not the end of the world, you know? So that's how we try to approach things is like, we recognize that things could happen, but we just try to mitigate those risks as best as we can. Yeah. And, and I I think that's key, right? So maybe go through some other risk control structures you put in place to protect that downside. Yeah, I mean, so a lot of it is just around the, the capital, like the investor money. I mean, we have a third party administrator. So like I literally myself, I cannot like send a wire out without an approval from like a third party. So protecting the capital. Also, when we send capital to like a middleman, let's say to do a deal, we have a special account called a, a DACA account, which is a depository account control agreement. So like no money can go out of that account 
without our approval. So like we couldn't theoretically just send money to someone and then they wire it and buy a car with it or something like that. Like it's got to have our approval on it. Plus we have the end customers of the middlemen actually pay into that account and they actually pay the middleman's margin as well on it. These middlemen are generally making like eight to 10% pure on these. So these deals are very lucrative for them as well and they want them to, to happen. But we get that added margin, which we send back to the middlemen. So it's sort of like a little bit of an added buffer as well. So there are a lot of like bells and whistles around this and like sort of a lot of details about how we protect the capital and like make sure nothing can leave without our permission. A lot of contracts and things like that. Um, we work with good law firms to set that stuff up as well. But I mean, it's yeah, it's a very it's been very very smooth so far. Uh, investors are very happy with it. So along those lines, how did the portfolio perform during COVID? Yeah. So I mean, we've been we've been by and large fine. Uh, I was actually featured in an article written by Reuters, which was actually picked up by the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. We had a ship. You know, the, the issue for us with COVID was like it just created some slowdowns, which actually can be good for us. Um, because we get paid based on the, the length of the deal. The longer the deal, the more interest we collect because we collect a financing spread. So like, we literally had a ship that was sitting outside of China that could not get into the port because they didn't have workers at the, enough workers at the port because everyone was hit with COVID. So like, we saw some like slowdowns, but like just looking at our like returns for you know March, April, May, like our returns were on par with normal months then. So like despite the slowdowns, like the business held up just fine. And I've got to ask about the Suez Canal. Any issues there? What is your takeaway? All that. Yeah, I mean, so generally our flow of material is usually from Latin America is where we buy most of our material all, all around the world. But we buy a lot of it from Latin America and then we ship to Asia. Usually most of our country customers are, are based or end, end consumers are based in Asia. Suez is mostly Asia to Europe. So we actually weren't affected directly by it just because our boats are going in the opposite direction. Where we were affected by it is shipping rates have gone up a lot. And that's one of the big margin, one of the like big components of like the middleman's margin as a result of it. So our, you know, our deals, we're still doing them at the same level, but our middlemen are actually making less money now because of all the like, you know, containers that are out of place, the delays and things like that. Um, we're hoping that that abates, but um that's a way that we could have been affected was more by like, you know, if it would have been blocked for longer, let's say 30 days or something like that, there'd be a ton of containers and like a big shortage of those. And a lot of our materials are shipped in containers. So like that definitely would have, would have impacted our margins, but. Why is that the case? Yeah. Why is it the case that the majority of your deal flow is Latin America to Asia? It's just the reality of like where a lot of the commodities are produced. So like a lot of copper is just produced in like Chile. That's just the reality of like where a lot of the mine sites are located. So it's just kind of circumstance. Like it's interesting when you look at like contracts for like futures contracts, the standard futures contract for metals on the London Metals Exchange is three months. Why is it three months? It's, it's quirky convention is because that's the length, the length was the length of time that it took a ship to get from Chile to London, you know, three months because where a lot of the, the trade flows were. So it's just circumstance why that's where we we do. Uh, we are doing some business in the U.S. now, actually, uh, on the West Coast of the U.S. now, which is exciting. So along those lines, this is anecdotal, but I want to, you know, take a step back after it. I was clothes shopping because I've got to go back and do meetings now with investors and I need new clothes. And I was at a retailer here in Nashville and they had to order all like the store was pretty barren. So I had to order line, blah, blah. And apparently it's because these supply chains are so jammed up 
I mean, are you seeing are you seeing that play out in real time in your business? And when do you think things will normalize, if ever? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the trigger for like the supply chain was like a lot of those materials. Like, if people don't realize it, like like shirts, pants, they're not shipped like as shirts and pants. Like they're straight up by themselves. They're like packed into these giant containers. So like with COVID, and there's a lot of countries like in the U.S. Like thankfully, like you know good amount of the country is, is vaccinated almost almost at a majority other countries in the world and people that we talk talk to you know in, in Latin America and things like that Africa like no vaccinations whatsoever so a lot of those containers were like prioritized for like PPE like masks gowns hospital supplies and are like in these locations that are not in normal shipping lanes so that's what I think triggered a lot of it was like really covid once we get more vaccines to the world which is why I think it's important for us to like you know once we take care of ourselves with our vaccines, I think it's important to like take care of the rest of the world as well, because that directly impacts us. And like the more containers that we can get into normal shipping lanes, the quicker you're going to get your, you know, your clothes for your meetings. That's just the reality. It benefits us too. Well, I need them badly because all my, it's bad. So <laughs> hopefully it gets fixed here. So I kind of want to get really into details and nerd out on, on some of the terminology and because I'm fascinated by how this works conceptually and as a recovering attorney, I know enough to be dangerous about some of these some of these terms we're about to get into. But talk about payment against a bill of lading. What is a bill of lading, and how does it kind of what does that have to do with the the financing transactions that you're participating in? Yeah. So generally, what happens is when when you look at like these giant container ships, like let's say there are twenty thousand containers on a ship, you wouldn't believe the amount of like paperwork that goes behind every single one of those containers is like very, very well documented. So all a bill of lading is, is it's basically like the same thing when you send a package like via FedEx. It's basically like sort of a confirmation of like with a little bit more detail of like sort of what boat it's on, what material that you're shipping. Like they want to make sure that your people aren't shipping drugs or arms or things like that. And it's basically just a receipt for like what you're shipping on a boat. That bill of lading has a lot of power to it. Um, because basically whoever has that bill of lading in hand controls that material. So once it lands, you present that bill of lading and that material is yours. So payment against a bill of lading is effectively payment against rights to the material. That's generally how it works. We often, we don't, we don't take the bill of lading ourselves. Generally, the way it works is we'll have Western banks. They'll pay based on something called a letter of credit. So what will happen is we'll have like, you know, SGS, Alfred Knight, like certifying bodies. We'll look at the material and let's say we want to buy like lead of a particular quality or silver. They'll actually do an analysis of it. They'll prepare a report. They'll load that material into a container. They'll seal the container with like, you know, an irremovable steel with a code on it and a scanner and everything like that. And then the customer and customer's bank will pay for the material provided they get all the necessary documents, like in a say report that it is what it really is. Um, and they're basically acting as an agent on behalf of the customer, which is beautiful. So like some point when that, you know, of that 60 day sea journey, when the ship is going from like Latin America to Asia, we'll get paid for that material um, based on the bill of lading, based on all the specs of the material and everything like that, provided everything matches. So it's a very smooth process. And then how does the holding certificate play into this? And, and what is it? Yeah. So sometimes we'll, sometimes it depends on when we take possession of the material. So like there are times where we'll take possession of the material when it's at a port, which will be against a bill of lading. There are other times where we'll take possession of the material when it's inland. So like, let's say we're dealing with, you know, a factory or, a, you know, a mine site in, um, I don't know, in India or something like that, you know, 
we can have the, the miner will sometimes deliver the material to a warehouse and they'll basically issue like a holding certificate that like yield point stable value fund owns that material once it gets to that warehouse. So it's just an earlier place in the journey that will take ownership over it. And then once it gets to the port, we'll have a bill of lading on top of it as well once it gets loaded. So different stages. These are all the concepts I learned in commercial paper in law school that I didn't really understand until I started you know, talking to people like you. And now I think, okay, well, I wish they'd presented this in a different way. <laughs> it actually yeah. makes more sense. Yeah. It's not that complicated. It's just like, sometimes you just have to see one and you're like, oh, that's what a bill of lading. Like all these contracts are like centered around these like obscure documents. And then you actually like look at it and read it. And you're like, oh, that's pretty simple. It's like a FedEx receipt, you know? So along those lines, I know you gave a little bit of a fact pet earlier, but could you maybe give us just an example um, transaction of, you know, all the players involved, where you come in, how this works soup to nuts? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so like a typical transaction, let's see, yeah, I mean, you know, an example of like a transaction that, I've, that I that I did, yeah, I'd say like, you know, relatively recently would be, you know, there was uh, a mine facility in Mexico. They produced basically a silver mine production facility. They had some soil that came out, which wasn't pure silver. They mostly sold pure silver. They approached a middleman approached them and said, "Hey, I've got a customer in China that may be interested, you know, in this type of material. Will you sell us that material?" The middleman settled that deal. They worked it out and they said, "Yes, you know, we have a customer. Yes, we'll sell it to you." They approached us and said, "Hey, will you finance this transaction for you know small, not a whole lot of money? It was like three hundred thirty-nine thousand dollars." We check a lot of the like the document. There's a lot of documentation behind every one of these deals that we check. I mean, we look at to make sure that there really is a buyer of it. There's a signed contract with the buyer. There's a third party that checks to make sure the material is really silver of like, you know, the right quality, you know, quantities and qualities and everything like that. So there's a lot of like document checking that goes on. Once we, once we see that, we'll sign the buy and the sell contract. For this one, it was 245 tons. So obviously, you know, there's a small amount of silver because 245 tons of silver would be worth a lot more than $339,000. So we signed the buy and the sell contracts. We took possession of the silver on April 9th. We actually took possession of it. The, the mine facility was, was willing to bring it to the port. It shipped out of a port called Man, Manzanillo, which is in Western Mexico. And then we ended up getting paid on that 14 days later against a letter of credit from a Western bank on behalf of the Chinese customer at an interest rate of 10.28% annualized 14 days later. You know, we're doing these deals. Sometimes we do multiple deals a day. So we're, we're doing things like that all the time. What kind of hours do you keep? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so we, we're, we're, you know, it's interesting because I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the people that we, the middlemen that we deal with are, are in multiple places in the world. You know, there's some based in Europe. We don't have any based in Asia. But I mean, yeah, that's the thing about this is that a lot of the, a lot of it's done on email. So the beauty is we could get something from like, let's say Europe in the, in the middle of the night, we'll deal with it first thing in the morning. So, I mean, we keep us hours, but I mean, there's always something going on, you know, around the world to focus on. Yeah. It's a fascinating business. So I want to maybe ask you some unfair questions. There's been a lot of talk about us entering into a potential super cycle in the commodity space. You're, you know, in, you're exposed to that world, but not, I guess, not directly as like as a miner or as a commodity trader per se. But you're obviously in the flow. What do you think about some of those assertions? I think it's a good assertion. I think markets like markets trade often to like expectations. Like if you look at the stock market, I mean, 
in the middle of COVID, like no one was expecting, you know, April, May, June, like when things were really bad, like no one was expecting the market to go up, but it did because it's a microcosm of like the smartest and most intelligent people in the world. Um, and they realized that like, hey, there were vaccines, there was going to be bailouts and things like that, and things would get better. So I think one should be cautious about commodity markets when they see that they've been up like, you know, 25 to 30% on the year. The reality of what we're seeing on the ground is like China is buying commodities hand over fist to build buildings and do infrastructure. I could see the US doing the same thing. I could see other countries around the world in Latin America, like just a global like, hey, let's build more buildings. Let's fix all the bridges that are, have been broken because it, just, it creates jobs um, and it needs to get done. So like what better time to do it than now when our infrastructure in the US is like a D level. So man, I posted something on LinkedIn the other day that I stole from some trader that I'm on his distro list. I think the average age of a bridge in America is 45 years. Yeah. Average. Yeah. Yeah. It's scary. It's scary. I mean, we, cause we, we built a lot of things and like the issue is not just building it. It's like, you know, maintaining it, which costs a ton of money. People don't think about their like, I'll build a building, but like, you know, in the real estate business, right. It's like, it's all about the, the maintenance and, you know, Cap- the boiler, the heating, you know, CapEx, CapEx deferred maintenance will crush you on that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that that's, yeah, I like, I totally believe in it. Again, I, I can't, I can't say what the price of copper is going to be going forward. You know, if the market's anticipated it or not, we've had a good run up, but man, I think, I think the world will be buying a lot more raw materials and commodities, you know, over the next five years, definitely. So along those lines, given your, your background with, you know, some of these really stalwart Wall Street firms, hedge funds, asset managers, et cetera, do you think that space is going to be disintermediated by fintech on some level? Do they're like their core business offerings? Yeah. I mean, the stuff that we're seeing like out of out of fintech, like I have a friend of mine that I work with at Bridgewater and he, you know, medical billing was like an area that was like, you know, rife with issues and things like that. And like the guy that I like literally work with, I just saw a headline, he built this company called Cedar. billion valuation, like it's a fintech, you know, fintech firm to tackle big issues. So like, I just see a lot of like smart people that I've worked with in the past that are like doing these type of things. So like, I think there's going to be a ton of disruption, like the banking industry, like, does it need to cost, you know, $15 to like wire money? And does it need to take like multiple hours for that to happen or $30 or $50 for an international wire? No, I mean, there are fintech companies that are like doing that for free right now and they're doing it instantly. So, and we, we closed the transaction yesterday and we were trying to get the wires out to everybody. And the escrow agent says, Oh, it's, you know, 4 PM New York time. Sorry. They'll hit tomorrow morning. And I just thought to myself, that's ridiculous that (laughs) this person in Dallas is telling me that I can't move money around because it's four o'clock in New York. I mean, who cares? There's, there, there has to be a better way. And frankly, I think blockchain is going to do away with the entire escrow agent business in general, but this is a, I'm going way down a rabbit hole, but I completely agree with everything you're saying. Yeah. I mean, where it really adds value is like, there are a lot of like migrant workers and like, let's say workers from like the Philippines that are in Japan and like these workers, they want to send money home. So they're paying like Western union, like a 20% commission or whatever huge commission to like send money when like, you can use like a stable coin or like some sort of like blockchain product to like do that for virtually nothing. So there's going to be a lot of disruption in like the banking world, I think through blockchain. 
And it could be that'll help us in commodities also, because a lot of our contracts, you know, there's a lot of paperwork behind all these deals. It would be amazing if there was like some universal ledger where like you could just confirm everything. It takes a lot of fraud out of the market, you know, checks and balances and things like that. So yeah, I'm high hopes for improvements. You know, I, I tell people all the time who talk about DeFi, et cetera. I'm like, listen, man, when I was a kid and I was hanging out with my dad's friends and I didn't realize it at the time, but these stockbrokers are making 7% on a trade. And like, that's just a friction cost. And at some point, somebody realized that doesn't need to cost what it does. And guess what? You now can buy stock for zero. So like, be careful if your business model is focused on just being a friction cost of these transactions, because I think it's all going to really be disintermediated. Yeah. Yeah, um, sure. Sorry, we're going way down. It's just, I, I think you're in the flow and a super interesting guy. So I was curious about your thoughts there. Well, thanks for joining, man. This has been awesome. Super interesting. I'd love to have you on the deal club and you can pitch some of our investors and network about what you're doing. Cause I think it's fascinating. What is the best way for people to get in touch with you? If they just want to learn more about what you do or, or learn more about the fund offering itself. Yeah. I mean, so we do have a website. It's yield point LP, like limited partner. So Y-I-E-L-D-P-O-I-N-T-L-P.com. We're on LinkedIn. So that's super easy. If you just look up yield point, stable value fund, or look up me, you know, Nathaniel Palachek, anywhere on the net, like you'll figure out some way to get us. You can get us directly from our website. There's a contact us link. That's probably the best way to do it. But yeah, I mean, we've been featured, you know, quite a bit in the media and stuff as well. So like, you know, if, if you just Google, you'll, um, you'll definitely see some articles about us too. Great. Well, Nate, thank you so much for joining us. Enjoy the long weekend. Have fun playing golf out in Oregon or wherever you're going. And, uh, you know, look forward to continuing the conversation. Yeah, sounds good. Great to speak with you, Brian. And thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.